Welcome to my podcast, Coaching in Nature. My name is Dr. Andrea Sibylla Clausen. I am a coach and a medical doctor. Here you'll learn everything about how you can improve your life, your personal well-being and the well-being of our planet. You get amazing coaching and health tips and you will meet inspiring guests who all have one thing in common. They love nature and they care about our planet. I think this, um, this urge to, to change something has always been with me, to take responsibility for the things that matter to me in my life. I want to walk my talk. I don't just want to talk about it. I want to actually do it. And then there was this moment where I thought, hang on, why is that not me? Like, what's, what's holding me back from doing exactly that? Yeah, welcome, uh, Rika Kosi. I'm so I'm so happy to meet you, and uh, I give a little introduction about Rika now, and um, the rest you will tell us uh, about your life and what you're doing. So, Rika, you are a trainer, a writer, and blogger about sustainable living and climate crisis, and you're a coach, and um, just created a Udemy course on emotional reactions to climate change. Yeah, truly react to what is happening right now. And I'm very, very curious to learn more about, about your experiences. At some point in your life, you wanted to walk the talk and become your true self. Now you inspire and help people to change their lives to live a more sustainable life. Your credo is, if you can create a life that is good for yourself, it will be also good for our planet. So, dear Rika, please tell us, who is Rika? And how did your <laughs> sustainability journey started? And also, what or who inspired you in the very beginning? Well, first up, thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm honored. Um, how did it all start for me? Um, I think... I, to be honest, someone asked me the other day if little Rika would have thought, would be proud of, of growing up Rika today and would have thought that I would um, be where I am today. And I think little Rika would, have, would be very proud because I've always been more of an independent spirit. I've always, um, I've always taken people on, on an unexpected turn. So so I think this, um, this urge to, to change something has always been with me. And um, but I think the big break for me in my life and my, if you want to call it waking up, was when I had children. So when my son was born eight years ago, he was a winter baby and um, he had really chappy skin. Um, his skin was really bad. So I started looking for alternatives. I started looking around and I started talking to people and I said, what else can I do? What, what else is possible? What can I, what can I do myself? And um, the solutions came really easily. And I started to realize that there is a lot more I can do to, to, take, to take responsibility for the things that matter to me in my life. And it's like over the years, it turned from skincare over to food so that I started cooking every day, for example, that I started um, asking questions about where my food comes from. Um, and now I, I live in Sweden and we have um, a seven hectare farm where um, we have animals and we're 
were gardening and um so yeah it's it's turning into a sustainable life that's or sorry not a sustainable life a self-sufficient life that is quite quite ambitious um but it's also something that like you said i'm i'm i want to walk my talk i don't just want to talk about it i want to actually do it and um it's hard it's not always pleasant yeah and it's a lot of work but for me it's really worth it because i can see how what i can do what what is in what is in my realm of of possibility to do and how to take care of myself um so yeah i think that's that's roughly the my journey <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's really amazing i think what i'm hearing is that it's um it was um more of a process so it was not this one day you woke up and you knew okay I'm going to pack my stuff. I'm going to tell my husband um, uh, we're going to Sweden or something like this. So it was a process. And also you were at a university. I think you did uh, some research. Yeah, maybe mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about, about your academic background and what you did at that time. Yeah. So, um, I mean, my background is in social sciences. So I've always been interested in how people interact with each other and with, with the outside world and in particular with nature. So I did some... A lot of research around water and the relationship between people and water. Um, but the funny thing for me was that I love doing the research, but I never actually lived the way that I wanted to. Um, so I had this, I remember this moment when I was doing my PhD that I said in class, and one of my colleagues was talking about, um, she was researching sustainable lifestyles. Um, and she was talking about how other people live and I, I was really... I was really immersed in the story and I was like, yes, that sounds awesome. And then there was this moment where I thought, hang on, <laughs> why is that not me? Like what's, what's holding me back from doing exactly that? Why do I have to listen to someone else's story about it? And um, that was a real, almost a slap in the face because I suddenly realized that I wasn't doing what I actually wanted to do. Like academia yeah, it's, I love research. I love interacting with people. I love finding out about you know, book connections and making connections. But I also need to need to figure out what it is that I want in my life and how I want to live my life. And mm. academia doesn't answer that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a different perspective, at least. So yeah, mm. that's interesting. You you mentioned that um, that um, the water thing. You know, where that people also obviously. Um, react differently to water or yeah tell us more about this I think for me personally water is one of the the, the top themes of the future yeah water scarcity mm. water pollution etc so what yeah research uh, did you do about it or observations you have that would be very interesting to know so um, I was looking at a project in the state of New South Wales and Australia where at the time they um they had an application for mining coal seam gas which is a gas that is extracted in a process that's very similar to fracking um for people who know this it's um it's a process that's used in the us to extract natural gas from from um, rock so it's not just from the soil but rock is split open and then the gas was released and it's a relatively dirty project um, process and um, the problem with it is that it has a very high potential of contaminating groundwater resources because they're chemical, they are chemicals that are being used and pumped underground to, to split the rock and to hold it open. 
So there was an application um, in, um, in the areas called Wollongong. So in the Wollongong area, there was an application to start coal steam gas extraction. Um, and I was really interested to know what it means for people in the area to have their water resources attacked like that. Because the background story is that Wollongong has been since the 1800s a mining area. So coal mining was a was the driver of growth in the in the area and um so they've always been involved with coal mining coal mining was always there and suddenly they are opposing another form of mining so i ask what has changed what is what has suddenly changed and how did people uh, make sense of of their water being threatened at the same time and um, all these things come into play and it was quite interesting to look at um how the activists talk about the water resources, which was always from a um, from a life sustaining perspective, always from a water nourishing perspective, and then contrast that with the mining company who always talked about water as an asset. It was always about a number or the uh, the amount of cubic meters that are going to be contaminated. It was always about the economics of it. Um, so I could really see how the two sides could never really agree because they would speak in completely different languages, was a completely different approach to this one thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that translates into my work today. So um, when people ask me about what I consider nature to be, my answer is probably very different from, from everyone else's. Um, and it's it's really interesting to, to keep in mind that the way I interpret the world is not how everyone else interprets the world. And um, in integrating that into my work today is really important because it gives me a sense of, of who I am in relation to others and who others are in relation to me. And then the question, do we, do we, can we meet somewhere? Is there some, some element of agreement between the two of us or are we speaking completely different languages yeah that's that's very interesting what you're describing it's what um yeah what many people um also when they analyze the discrepancy so the gap between knowing and doing also in leadership there's always this this kind of yes but uh you know this is we are nature so how can you kind of talk about numbers and uh rationalize harming consequences with of course economic uh, reasons and the, it's like a cognitive dissonance it's like a, someone who smokes cigarettes you know <laughs> you know it's bad but you still continue doing it and I also observe this also with my with my children and um, their friends that there is a there's a grief also that we can observe mm -hmm. um, what is your observation I think so when you just mentioned the economic take on nature for example I actually see grief in there as well, because by, by rationalizing it, we're defending what's actually happening. We're defending ourselves, our egos. And um, I, see, I see almost trauma responses collectively today in our societies when it comes to climate change. We don't just have to talk about climate change either. We can talk about social disruption. We can talk about threats of war. We can talk about democratic institutions failing, social ruptures. There are a lot of things that are triggering people into trauma-like responses today. So anything from, from hoarding of toilet paper at the beginning of the COVID pandemic to um, 
to the the threats of war that I already uh, mentioned around the world. Those are all traumatic responses to what's happening to us globally. And I think that is that is linked to us being nature people. Is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a word, but we are nature beings. We have nature inside us and no one can take that away. Even if we rationalize it, even if we put numbers on it, even if we if we explain it away, we will always be nature beings. And ultimately, if we destroy our planet at the rate as we are at the moment, our life will be drastically different in a hundred years. And I mean, you and I will probably hopefully not see it, but our children and their children might see it. And um yeah, facing that uncertain future creates a lot of stress today, a lot of, um, you, you mentioned grief, um, it creates a lot of tension in our societies because we cannot agree on, on a future that we collectively want, which is strange, but understandably because we are all reacting differently and we're all at various phases of our development when it comes to understanding that we need we need to sustain planet mm. Earth as it is and not keep destroying it. Mm. Yeah, let's go back to the, let's say, positive aspect or the creative aspect that you basically, yeah, kind of manifested um, in taking a, a bold decision. So let's go back to this point where you knew um, you have to change or you want, not you have to, you want, you decide mm. to change your life. Yeah, what happened? Um I'll start, I might start with my uh, writer family. I'm originally from Germany and um, my whole family is in Germany. For them, it was a little weird. We decided that we wanted to build a tiny house on wheels. That didn't fly very well. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> to put it. Um, well, I mean, there was support, but it was, I don't think anyone really understood why we wanted to do it. So the story behind the tiny house is that we decided that we wanted to move to Sweden. We lived in Australia. So my husband is originally from New Zealand and we lived in Australia at the time. We had a very normal Australian suburban life. So my husband worked, traveled one and a half hours from and to work every day in the central business district of Sydney. So very stressful. I was a stay-at-home mom because childcare was very limited and um, so yeah, a very normal Australian life that we didn't want. Um, so we were looking for alternatives. And so Sweden came up as an as an option. It has, the education system is, is great. So we wanted to come to Sweden, but we also realized that living here is expensive and um, that renting is, is comes with a high price tag. So we decided that we wanted to try this idea of a tiny house. And um, we found a builder here in Sweden who would design our tiny house and build it. And um, so our tiny house is 40 square meters and we are four people. <laughs> and um, it was pretty, so the reactions were very mixed. And between friends who said, oh, that's really great. I wish I could do that to family who didn't really understand it. Mm. Um, we, uh, we since... So we moved into the tiny house when the ki my kids were, and I have to think they were three and, and five. Yeah, and um, we lived in it for two years full time. And last year we bought a property and moved the tiny house with us. And um, so now we're, 
we live in a slightly bigger house, but it's still a small house. And um, we love the we love the tiny house. It's still with us, and um, it's still there. And now we are actually uh, I'm looking forward to having our, our families come and stay in it and experience tiny house living and experience that it's not just possible, but it's actually really cool. And it was just a very cozy place. Um, since it was custom made, it had everything, no space wasted. Everything was just the way we needed it. Um, so it was just, it was ours. Hmm. And there was no compromise on mm -hmm. anything. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. other than the, the physical space, but there was no, there was no need for us to, to say, oh yeah, we don't want this or we can't have that. Um, hmm. Yeah how can we imagine i mean that may be the beginning so so you you just you packed your stuff and from australia and then moved right away to sweden so yeah so how how can we imagine this first place you know was it next to a lake or or a forest or what, what uh, where was it oh not quite i wish we could have had that no we packed <laughs> no my, <laughs> my, that's my imagination it's like maybe yeah. my own dream so yeah tell us how it started yeah um so we lived in a tiny house community. We had a pact where other people also lived in tiny houses. So we weren't totally alone. And yeah, no lake, unfortunately, back <laughs> okay, in not yet. <laughs> um, but it was out in the countryside. So there was, yeah, we had big fields around us. And um, we had wild birds coming and the occasional deer. And so we definitely had life, wildlife in view. And the, the funny thing I have to point out when it comes to tiny houses on wheels, because often people th people think that because it has wheels, it's so easy to move, but it's actually not that particularly easy because it weighs 10 tons. So you can't just put it on the on the back of a car. We need a, a quite a decent um, tractor to move it. And, um, and then you have to park it. And the parking is also not that easy because it has to be level you have to preferably raise it off the wheels. So not having it resting on the wheels, you need to connect the water into it. So you need to be able to connect power into it. And then you need to take care of everything that comes out of the tiny house. So we had a dry toilet, so that was that was okay, or separating toilet. Um, but everything from, from doing the dishes to having the shower to doing the laundry, like all that water had to be taken care of as well. So I was actually, not that easy and we're still at the moment the tiny house has has got power but no water yet because in, in Sweden you have to make it frost proof and um yeah so the way we live now like I said we have a we have a property with seven hectares um with this which half of it is, is forest and the other half is is open fields and we have the tiny house sitting on one of the fields and um we're gonna set it up as a holiday cottage holiday house Maybe the kids will move into it when they're sick of us. And um, yeah, we we want to make the tiny house part of our of our doing here. So we want to be able to provide the space for people to come and to experience living like we live in the forest, so they can um, they're welcome to experience forest life a little bit. We have a lot of deer coming now. We have a lot more wildlife than we did before, and. Um, just being being closer to nature and um, that was actually a big draw to me also to the tiny houses because you have limited physical space inside you automatically go outside there is the boundary between inside and outside is much smaller than in a regular house there was no 
double door, there is no hallway, there's you're either in the house or you're outside the house. And then in winter in particular, because in Sweden it's so dark in the winter, you, you go out, you go out, even in the dark, it doesn't matter, you go out. And um, that's something that I almost miss in our house now. The boundary is still small because it's still a small house, but um, in the tiny house, it was just that much easier to just step out the door and to be outside. And just a, like a small example, I remember that I really enjoyed our first Swedish winter because suddenly I had an extra fridge I could just put out stuff outside the front door and it would be cold. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm, um, mm. So just like little things like that where we weren't cushioned anymore in terms of heating and um, being able to hide away from the weather. It was dry inside, it was warm inside, but um, we were still very much reliant on, on the external temperatures and reacting, being or having to react to that. So, um, yeah, I, lo I love tiny house. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as you said, um, from the starting point that you wanted to live a sustainable life. Um, mm. Yeah. If you if you look at your life now, um, a few years later, um, do you feel that you have kind of reached what you longed for or what what how, where are you now in this process? Oh, I'm not finished. <laughs> no, I don't think I can ever be finished, to be honest. There is always more to do, right? Um, yeah. What, what I, so I'm very passionate about food. I'm very passionate about food production, for example. And um, we have, and we're not vegetarian, but we only eat meat that we know. I always say I know where, I know The, the cow you know itself. the name <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't really like yeah. I've never met the actual cows yeah. but um I know the the place where they come from I often know the people who hold them who um whose animals they are or um so which where they've where they've lived their life and sometimes where they've been slaughtered we have chickens ourselves that we slaughter ourselves and then eat so that's that's even closer they do have names um so being in touch with with my food like that is is really awesome because it gives me a sense of of, of appreciation um so when we we have this ritual when we kill one of our chickens which most of the times it's a rooster um we always say goodbye you always say oh. goodbye and then whatever the name was it's oh. it is sad and um the first mm -hmm. time my children watched us slaughter a rooster it wasn't <laughs> wasn't very pleasant for them but mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. what like our ancestors have done that for thousands mm -hmm. of years someone does it still for us and i might as well do it myself because I can. Slaughtering a chicken is not great, but it's possible. Mm. We even slaughtered a turkey. That was a big, bigger mission. <laughs> We're not going to slaughter a cow ourselves. But um, yeah, meat production is something that has been so far removed from our consciousness. It's so far. It's, it's the stuff that's packaged in the supermarket. We have generally, we have no relationship to to the food that we eat mm -hmm. and um in meat in particular is something that i have really come to realize that not only do i not want to eat meat that um is who knows where slaughtered and handled and mm -hmm. what happened to it 
but I actually want to um, want to make sure that I establish a somewhat of a relationship to mm. to the food or the food producers who um, who run the food. And um, a few years ago, sorry, just to bring that up, a few years ago I came across a term for what I do. So I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm a vegetarian. So I try to know my food, and I try to um, try to, for example, also pay a fair price for my food. Um, but I try to know the food and eat consciously. And I like the term vegetarian because it's kind of yeah. encompasses. Vegetarian. <laughs> no, I didn't hear this uh, before. Vegetarian, like it. Vegetarian. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So since we've just moved to our property, we haven't actually set up a garden. That's a project that's coming in the next weeks. I've got my seedlings downstairs that are growing um, already and I'm going to plant them outside. So I want to do a permaculture garden as much as I can. We want to, at the end of the year, plant a food forest. So have a lot of apple trees and pear trees and plums. And so all those kind of trees that are not just trees for show, but also produce food. Um, so that's that's our, our board idea. Um, when it comes to what, what individuals can do, since I'm very conscious that people are listening to us, um, I think what it's not just about growing your own food, it's also um, using the food that is available to us. So for example, I always encourage people, if possible, freeze your food, if possible, ferment your food. It's all those things are not very difficult. So for example, at the end of last year, in autumn, cabbage is always high, really readily available. It's really cheap and it's it's there. Making sauerkraut is really easy. <laughs> it's basically just shredding it and massaging salt into it and leaving it. So fermenting fermenting cabbage like that is is really easy and it's actually very healthy as well as well. So just taking all this this food preparation one step further or less complicated, whichever way you want to look at it, is something that I'm passionate about because I don't think we need to constantly rely on, on external food production. We can't, don't constantly always have to turn to someone else to, to provide us with our essential needs. And um, if we can think a little bit outside the box that our consumer culture has put us in, um, what can I freeze? What can I ferment? What can I turn into something lasting that um, I can live with for the next, even just weeks? It doesn't mm. have to be months. So, mm, yeah, these are uh, inspiring words um, because um, I guess it can also relate to people living in big cities that they can do something, you know, actually yeah. also even if they don't choose to, to live uh, the way you, you do. Um, another thought that came up, how does this closer connection to nature and, you know, living now in the forest, um, living closer to what you have dreamt about how to live, how did this affect your writing or your thinking? What, um, what occurred in this inspiration being around nature, exposing yourself to nature? Good question. <laughs> I think the main aspect that's benefited my writing is that I've come back to the basics. So when I, when I was in academia, the idea was always to think, to think massive ideas, to think very 
abstract to think about concepts that were developed by great thinkers. I've come back to what to this question of what can I do? What is possible? What is in my realm? Um, when you mentioned, so we talked to food just now and, and you mentioned people living in the city. My encouragement to people, and I hope that comes through in my writing is that while I live the way I, I want to live, it doesn't mean that everyone else has to live like that. I always encourage people to, to take a look at their own lives um, and really assess. And for that, mindfulness always comes first for me. So we always need to be aware of who we are, who we are in our system, who we are in, in our world, who we are in our family and in everything in order to really know what, what we can do in our lives. So when I work with clients, I always encourage them to, to really think, what can they do? What is in their realm of possibility? And not what does social media tell me about la-di-da-di-da. All those nice buzzwords of minimalism or zero waste or plastic free or anything like that. It's all good if you take it as an inspiration, but then to take it to your personal life means to really think about what is actually possible for you. And um, while, like, like we talked about, I, I live in the forest, I, I have the possibility to slaughter my own chickens. And I'm perfectly aware that that's just me, that no, not many other people are in the same state. Um, so taking our individual abilities in thinking about what can, what can individuals do to live true to their values? Just if I think of examples, so if I have someone who also is, is very passionate about, so I had a, I had a client a while ago who was working, she was a lawyer and she was working for a local authority, but wasn't really enjoying her job. But her, her main pain point was actually the suffering of people because of climate change. So we really looked at what can she do? What is in her, her realm of possibility to do? Because she had this pain point. She didn't want people to suffer. She wanted to, to help in the most productive way, but she didn't know how. So we kind of looked, what is there? What's, what groups can she interact with? What, what organizations are there? So all these things, map, mapping them out, um, can really be helpful to figure out what you can individually do. Mm. And it might be something, something like writing or something like activism or something like helping in your neighborhood. It's... Mm. There, there is no, no quick solution. There yeah, I think the pattern, the pattern might be that um, coming back to, you know, putting ourselves in the driver's seat again. So not mm -hmm. feeling overwhelmed uh, by, you know, the complexity of climate crisis um, is, is, is giving us, um, but um, breaking it down back to what can I do? Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're coming slowly to, to the end of the interview and um, maybe another, we were talking a little bit about the practical sides, how you live and, and what you do. And I'm very impressed because you're, you get your own meat. I mean, that's, that's really something that uh, not many people do. And uh, I like also the way how you, you frame it in a, in a very natural way in terms of like the ancestors did it always and that we are kind of in the industrial nations are kind of disconnected from the food production. So what is what is the fun and easy side of, of how you live right now? But 
maybe also some of the tougher sides. What is maybe, yeah, what, whatever you want to share with us. How do you feel about this? Because I think it's a choice, you know, the choice yeah. you, you make. I love animals. Um, so at the moment, I'm really looking forward to it. At the moment, one of our hens is broody and sitting on, I don't know, 10 eggs or something. I'm not sure how many are under there. Um, and we just check them that there there will be chicks, and that's really exciting. That I really <laughs> I can't wait. Like my husband told me off yesterday, he said you can't keep checking on her. She's not going to breed any faster if you keep checking twice a day. She gets so stressed out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and the roosters always already started attacking me because I come in too often. So yeah. Um, so that's that's really exciting. That's I, I even get a little bit teary about that because that's something that uh, that's 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 great. Um, the hard side of living the way we do is sometimes talking about it. So talking about it with like-minded people is always great. Is always really inspiring. But not everyone is like us, and not everyone really understands it. So we are, we're very blessed um, that we live in a community here that. As relatively close to what we want to do, um, sweets, sweets in general are relatively, relatively open to to new ideas and to nature in particular and um, to sustainable living. But um, when I talk about when I talk to people in Germany, for example, my friends there who I've worked with um, a few years ago, they don't get it, and that makes me really sad. That that's something where I think. I, I wish I would be able to to reach them on a level that they would understand it as well. And um, it's sometimes I, I really have to bend out of shape a little bit in order to have conversations, in order to, to maintain contacts to people who are dear to my heart, but who I actually know they don't either don't fully understand, don't want to understand, don't care, or think it's plain stupid what I do. So that's that's the hard part. That's um, mm. that's the mm. downside of, of mm. doing what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are next projects for you, or is there anything in your writing project or blog you want to share with us, or anything you know? Yeah, that's on your mind as a, something you would like to do in the future. So I want to keep developing um, online courses because that's really something that um, I love doing. I'm currently writing a book that um, is a, that goes along with the with the Udemy course that I already have up. So it talks about how to interpret our emotional reactions to climate change. Um, it will be a collection of essays. Um, that, that I've written partially and that I'm going to write that all deal with how do we as individuals approach climate change and then also the question of what can we do with that. So not just to stop with, oh, I'm, I'm not good with this, but then to go further and say, okay, what, what is it that I can do? Um, and we just talked about it now, um, what I do, and um, I've given a couple of ideas, but I want to really not just leave people with this feeling of climate change is bad. And the worst one is there is nothing you can do. There is something we can all do and there is something we all should be doing. And um, we all have, we all approach climate change from, from different angles. We all have, have different stories behind it. Um, how, we, how we want to leave the planet to, our, to the generations to come. We all have a desire to do that, um, but 
turning that into action is is the hard part for for most people it is still for me today to live true to what i want to every day um, so the the book is is designed as an inspiration for that um yeah but that's that's i think the main biggest project that's coming mm. up <laughs> for mm. me yeah i will uh yeah we will keep in touch anyway so how yeah. can people get uh, in touch with you and your work so the easiest is on my website. It's rikacossi.com. So R-I-K-A-C-O-S-E-Y.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. But um, I think the website is probably the easiest to, to see who I am, what I do, and um, how to reach me. Yeah. Yeah, Rika. Thank you so much, Rika. It was very inspiring uh, for me personally, also to meet you virtually. And I have a good friend in Sweden, so I will definitely pop in and visit the tiny house at some point. But, uh, we uh, we can travel again. And uh, yeah, very much looking forward to staying in contact. And yeah, have a have a great uh, rest of the day with the and uh, yeah. And please send me a picture of the of the little uh, chick <laughs> chicks. <laughs> Oh, I will, I will, definitely. Uh, Thank you for having me, Andrea. <laughs> okay. Thank you.